Welcome back to the Z Files. I am Professor Z, and I will be your host for this episode. This podcast is your one-stop shop for all things crime-related. I use my eight years of research and three years as a criminology professor to cram each episode with facts about crime patterns, statistics, criminal behavior, and tips for improving your personal safety. Say goodbye to the fear you think you have about crime, and say hello to your new expertise in the field of criminology. This episode is called A Time to Kill. I started out with 16 pages of data that I wanted to go over, but that's not possible for a 20-minute episode. I'm still finding the fine line between being a professor and being a podcaster, so bear with me. I did my best to pick out what I thought would be the most informative, but if you have any burning questions about homicide that I didn't go over, please shoot me an email at thezfilespodcast at gmail.com. The content of this episode will be heavy. I will be talking about child abuse, domestic violence, and many other things murder-related. Please keep anyone in your immediate listening vicinity in mind with this information. I know homicide to be a flashy topic. My students are usually the most engaged in this one. While we go over the gory details of what I have dug up about homicide, I don't want this to spike anyone's fear of crime. And that's a mantra I hope to preserve through many of these episodes. Please remember that most crimes do not threaten our well-being, and they are not committed by psychopathic strangers, but rather by trusted relatives and friends. First, I should define criminal homicide. Criminal homicide is the willful killing of one human being by another without legal justification or excuse. In the United States of America, a variety of penalties are assigned to killings the criminal justice system deems without justification or excuse. These penalties range from probation, jail, or prison time, with the most severe being the death penalty. The death penalty is administered through five different options, including lethal injection, electrocution, the gas chamber, hanging, and firing squad. Currently, 27 states exercise the death penalty. The majority of executions happen in the South. And by majority, I mean literally 80% of people who are executed are convicted in the South. And yet, that region continues to lead the nation in homicide rates. The South has executed 1,262 people. Texas, as a state by itself, has executed 574 people. And then the combined total of executions by the Midwest, the West, and the Northeast are 285. I don't know if that saying, don't mess with Texas, came from their capital convictions, but I could see it. The core of crime in Texas is a juvenile justice problem. I think we ought to try 14-year-olders as adults, down to 14-years-olders as adults, to help our gang task force members fight crime. In favor to, tonight to say that you would support lowering the capital punishment age for juveniles from 17? Mr. Bush. Uh, I would seriously consider a bill down to 14 years old. I don't think it would pass the Supreme Court test. I believe the age is 16, and I don't... 17. 17. In terms of the effectiveness of the death penalty, 88% of former and current presidents of the country's top academic criminological societies reject the idea that the death penalty 
acts as a deterrent to murder. Besides this, nearly four people are exonerated from death row each year due to factual evidence proving that they were wrongfully convicted. Since the Death Penalty Information Center started keeping track of death row exonerations, 185 people have been released after it was discovered they were wrongfully sentenced to death. Our system that is supposed to be the standard of justice in the world sent 185 innocent people to death row. Many of them were on death row for years or decades. Glenn Ford here spent nearly 30 years on death row for a crime he didn't commit. According to the Innocence Project in New Orleans, Ford spent 29 years, three months and five days of his life in solitary confinement on death row. An innocent man, years behind bar, spending every waking moment wondering if this would be the week he dies. Well, last year, Ford was exonerated. He had been the longest serving death row inmate in the U.S. at the time of his release. And just yesterday, Glenn Ford died. He only tasted freedom for a few months after losing his entire adult life. It's not surprising that our capital conviction system has made so many mistakes, because we have factual evidence of bias in death row sentencing. While our homicide law on the books doesn't differentiate punishments based on race of the victim in a case, the humans operating our systems definitely do. In 96% of the states where there have been reviews of race and the death penalty, there was a pattern of either race of victim or race of defendant discrimination, or both. The main pattern that emerges is that our criminal justice system places a higher punishment on offenders who kill white people compared to homicides of any other race. In Louisiana, the odds of a death sentence are 97% higher for those whose victim was white than for those whose victim was black. A comprehensive study of the death penalty in North Carolina found that the odds of receiving a death sentence rose by three and a half times among those defendants whose victims were white. In Texas, you are six times more likely to get the death penalty if your homicide victim is white. Jurors in Washington state are three times more likely to recommend a death sentence for a black defendant than for a white defendant in a similar case. Besides unequally applying the death penalty to cases based on race, we also see a strange pattern emerge among homicides as the result of domestic violence. The first weird one for me is that 90% of the women incarcerated for homicide are there for killing the man who had abused them. According to the ACLU, women who kill their abusers will spend an average of 15 years behind bars while men who kill their female partners will receive on average two to six years behind bars. Here's another weird one for me. A woman who is prosecuted for seeking out an abortion can expect to receive on average 10 to 20 years behind bars, but a man who kills a pregnant woman will receive less than 10 years. I have a few cases to illustrate this. In 2017, in North Carolina, a man was released from prison after serving seven years for stabbing his pregnant wife to death in their bedroom. In Nebraska, a man was found guilty of severing his wife's head from her body, but he was still allowed to re-enter the community under supervision after spending five years in a psychiatric hospital. In contrast, Marissa Alexander was sentenced to 20 years for firing a warning shot into the wall near her husband minutes after he had nearly strangled her to death. 
Crystal Potter served 20 years in prison for shooting her husband after he aimed a gun at her head. This interaction was the conclusion to weekly beatings. If we compare these cases to the definition of criminal homicide, what the system is telling us is that it is more justified for a man to kill the victim of his abuse than it is for the victim of the abuse to fight back. And yet, in sexual assault cases, the court penalizes victims who can't prove they fought back with every ounce of strength. But I digress. We'll get into that in another episode. Now that we have talked about the range of the legal system's response to homicide, let's get into the homicides themselves. As I said in episode one, the year 2019 had about 16,425 recorded criminal homicides. For comparison, 2015, that year had about 15,696 homicides. Important criminology tip here. You don't want to just compare raw numbers because that's not giving you an accurate picture of how the crime is operating in a population. You want the number of crimes per 100,000 people to have a better idea of how that crime is changing. In 2015, that rate was 4.9, so nearly five homicides per every 100,000 people. If we compare the 2019 number of homicides to the population, the rate is about the same, around five murders per every 100,000 people. So it's good news, actually. Our homicide rates are not climbing. Besides the grief homicide inflicts on loved ones, it takes a steep toll on our economy as well. A victimologist by the name of Catherine McAllister calculated that each murder costs the economy approximately $8.9 million in court fees, lost productivity, and lost spending by the victim. Most homicides follow a logical escalation process and are not random acts of violence. By logical, I don't mean that I agree homicide is a good tool for conflict resolution. But the circumstances that precipitate most homicides do have a logical progression that we see case after case. Let's talk about our youngest victims of homicide first, babies and children. The media is quick to sensationalize when a stranger abducts and kills a child. And Hollywood is obsessed with these kinds of dramas as well. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. And yet, stranger danger is not the cause of the majority of child homicides each year. Multiple data points continue to show that young children are mostly killed by family members. Child homicide usually stems from chronic child abuse. Child abuse reports in recent data involved 7.8 million children per year in the U.S. Less than half of these children will receive preventative or post-response services. 91% of victims of child abuse are mistreated by one or both parents. The American Medical Association reports over 1,000 deaths a year due to child abuse. 70% of these fatalities are among children under three years old. 80% of fatalities involve at least one parent. Unintentional injuries are the leading cause of death in children ages one to nine. However, without witnesses to confirm how the injury happened, 
many cases of child abuse are reported to medical professionals as unintentional injuries. With just the child homicides that we know about, the U.S. is the leading country for child and infant homicide out of other industrialized nations. Research shows that mothers are more likely to commit neonaticide and infanticide than fathers. Neonaticide is defined as killing an infant in the first 24 hours of life. Infant homicide, or infanticide, is defined as killing an infant who is older than 24 hours but younger than a year old. Neonaticide is also severely underreported because the first 24 hours of life can present enough natural challenges to explain some homicides as natural causes. Now, this next fact messes with a lot of people. Mothers who commit neonaticide are usually not suffering from mental health challenges. As children grow older, the fathers are more likely to be the perpetrator in homicide cases. And in the teen years, we find that children are more likely to be killed outside the family. Globally, boys are slightly more likely to be killed as children, and in America, teenage boys are at greater risk than teenage girls. What the progression of child homicide tells us is that we need to be vigilant to signs of child abuse. A lot of that is going to start with providing more resources for public educators because they are on the front line. Anyone working in childcare should be properly trained to know the signs of child abuse and have access to immediate help when they come across a child exhibiting those signs. I don't have time to go into all of those today, so we will visit that at another episode, but I will leave a link in the description box that has some helpful information for now. Moving on to adult victims of homicide. Victims and offenders usually share age, gender, and race. We find that males are slightly more likely to be killed by a stranger or a friend, while females are more likely to be killed or kill a family member. Men are four times more likely to be murdered than women. They are also seven times more likely than women to commit murder. In 2019, 88% of known homicides were committed by men. Young adults ages 18 through 24 have the highest victimization and offending rate for homicide. The U.S. has the highest rate of homicide among industrialized nations for men in this age group. So if you're keeping score, the U.S. now holds the highest rate of homicide for young adult males and infants. The type of weapon involved in adult homicides is significant. Without the use of certain weapons, we wouldn't have as many homicides. When guns are used in robberies, for instance, the fatality rate is three times higher than when a knife is used. Many of the intimate partner homicides in the U.S. are the result of a gun. As many as two-thirds of these deaths are due to a firearm. 92% of women in a violent relationship who were killed with a gun in developed countries in 2015 were from the U.S. I'll say that another way. 2015, the U.S. represented 92% of women victims who were killed with a gun in a violent relationship. Women in the United States are 28 times more likely to die by firearm homicide than women in peer countries. It's not that domestic violence is lower in those countries, it's really about gun access. 
Gun access increases the likelihood of an abuser killing a female victim by five times. States with a higher rate of gun ownership contain 65% of the intimate partner violence homicides by firearm. Some might be worried that I'm about to go on a tangent advocating for movement that would remove all guns from American households. That's not my stance. I believe logical adults can have the conversation about who should and shouldn't be allowed to have access to guns without everyone getting insecure about their rights. Criminal offenses such as domestic violence should be disqualifiers from people having the right to a gun since we have the math to prove the toll it is taking on human lives. If you aren't abusing anyone, this legislation won't be a threat to you anyways. If you are abusing someone, then yeah, this should make you uncomfortable. Now I bring us to serial murder. Serial murder happens when the same person kills several victims in three or more separate events. The majority of serial killers are not legally insane or medically psychotic. The truth of it is, most of them are more cruel rather than crazy. Out of seven identifiable motives for serial killing, only one deals with psychosis in which the offender is suffering from a severe mental illness and kills because of it. Really, their evil is a choice. Watching the movie Exorcist 3 was also part of his ritual. It put him in the mood for murder. I felt so hopelessly uh, evil and perverted that uh, that I, I actually derived a sort of pleasure from watching that tape. Did you like feeling evil? No. No, I didn't. But uh, I tried to overcome the thoughts and it worked for a while but eventually I gave in. The voice you just heard belongs to a man who sodomized, killed, and dismembered 17 men and boys. After this, he ate their remains. Many serial killers can be categorized as sociopaths, but that doesn't mean every sociopath is capable of serial murder. A sociopath is simply someone who lacks a conscience. Depending on how that person was socialized, they can choose many life paths that do not involve murder. Some have psychopathy, but not all violent offenders are psychopaths, and not all psychopaths are violent. The FBI states that there is no generic profile for a serial murderer. Their motivations for killing and behavior at a crime scene vary. Experts do identify some common traits that nearly all serial murderers share, such as sensation-seeking, lack of remorse or guilt, impulsivity, the need for control, and predatory behavior. They have also identified some common interpersonal traits, such as glibness, superficial charm, a grandiose sense of self-worth, pathological lying, and the manipulation of others. Generally, these are accompanied by antisocial behaviors as well, such as poor behavior controls and juvenile delinquency. If you remember from last time, this would also include arson. Another frequent trait that happens, especially in the teenage years, is bedwetting. Bedwetting past the age of toilet training is always a sign of child abuse. And what we find is that many serial murderers have been abused while they were growing up.
Serial killing is on the decline thanks to better law enforcement capability and technology advances. Serial murders are more challenging because they usually target strangers and don't leave many personal connections to their victims for police to start investigating. The first step in an investigation about serial killing would be to figure out the motive of that killer. The FBI has been able to come up with a guide behind the actions of serial murderers that is helpful. Anger is the underlying motive when an offender displays rage or hostility towards a certain subgroup of society. This would be evident in the similarities between victims. Financial gain is motivation, obviously, when the offender is making money from killings. These would include Black Widow killings, robbery homicides, or killings that involve insurance or welfare fraud. Interesting fact here, Black Widow killings are typically carried out by female offenders. Ideology is the motive to commit murders in order to further the goals and ideals of a specific individual or group. Examples of these include terrorist groups or an individual who attacks a specific group. Members of the KKK have earned this label throughout the entire history it has existed. Another common motive includes sexual desire. Okay, before we go any further, I think I mean, it's important to me and, uh, and that people that people believe what I'm saying, to tell you that, that I'm not blaming pornography and not saying that it caused me to go out and do certain things. And I take full responsibility for whatever I've done and all the things that I've done. That's not the question here. The question and, and, and the issue is how this kind of literature contributed and helped mold and, and shape the kinds of violent behavior. It fueled your fantasies. In the beginning, it fuels this kind of thought process. Then, The voice you just heard belongs to a man who's responsible for killing at least 50 women in the United States. Washington State gets a bad rap for having the most serial killers because some famous ones started their killing there. But it is actually Washington, D.C. that has had the most serial killings in the country. We don't have an accurate number of total serial killers in America. A good deal throughout history have remained unknown or free from capture. In addition, the killers who go after white victims receive the most attention. Many non-white victims of serial killing are not recorded in the category, so we don't even have an accurate idea of how many victims have been killed by serial killers. Serial killers have targeted women living on reservations and low-income non-white women in order to evade capture. While I can't give you an accurate number, I can tell you some trends that have emerged from serial killers that were known to law enforcement. In a report of 544 cases of serial murders, 74% of the murderers were from the United States, where 85% were male, 8% were female, and the sex was undetermined in the cases in which the offender was still at large. In addition, 82% of American serial killers were white. Motives were often psychological, with strong sadosexual overtones and evidence of compulsive behavior. Since 1969, 8% of the cases involved practitioners of Satanism, while another 5% involved members of the medical profession. You'll notice that I have not dropped a single name of a killer yet, and I refuse to. That is because another common trait among all serial killers is that they enjoy the attention for their killings news reports, documentaries, podcasts, books, and now even Netflix shows 
all play into exactly what a serial killer wanted when they targeted their victims. They not only wanted to take life, but they wanted to become famous for it. The sad thing is, even as a criminologist, I can tell you three serial killers' names right now off the top of my head, but I can't tell you the name of a single victim of their killings. And this is why I don't talk about serial killers a lot. I've studied their work extensively, but I will not participate in glorifying them. Sorry for running over time today. Tune in to the next episode called Glass Ceilings and Low Morals to hear about mass murderers and the companies that choose murder to maximize profit. If you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review if your platform allows. We'll talk to you later.